Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. And while we sit here and record Stop this, staring at you, it's March first, and it's Fat Tuesday, mm. and I'm having donuts for dinner. <laughs> Those of you who are Yum. from um, the, you know, I, I guess Michigan. I don't know. No. Isn't, this, isn't this a nationwide thing? Oh, Poonskis are everywhere. Poonskis are everywhere. Okay, but we have a, a Polish, a larger Polish yeah, community around yeah, us I, in Metro I'm, Detroit. I mean, a mile away from our if, studio. If here, you don't right? know what a Poonski is. It's a, it's a stupid donut. It's a delicious donut. It's a slightly different dough. I don't know if it's a yeast-based dough or a cake-based dough. I forget. But they're delicious, and they're filled with cream, which I love. And I'm sure there's something they do to justify how expensive traditionally, they are. Traditionally, the fillings are rosehip or prune. Now, that sounds to most people like... Bleh. Prunes are really good. <sighs> okay. Well, I feel most people use prunes to go to the bathroom. So... Saying. Okay, let's move along. <laughs> so, but Poonchki business has expanded over time, and you can get every filling known to mankind. So there is a they'll, they'll put a Matchbox car in there if you want to sure, crunch that down. Sure. They don't care anymore. Uh, if you got metal teeth, you can crunch just, that with just crunch whatever you want. If you're uh, a transformer, we got you. Yeah, taken okay, care that's of. a Poonchki for a transformer. There you go. So yeah. the the place down the road from us does these exotic Poonchkis. Exotic. Oh, God, so yeah, we I have like that. a. Bourbon bacon, bourbon candied bacon. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And then we already had a fruit, uh, cocoa pebble and raspberry filled. Like, oh, it was yeah, that. Yeah. You got half of that upstairs right now. It's so good. Quarter of it. And then the one we had earlier was like this praline filled, uh, something candied basil. I just Get, getting hungry yet, people. And then, <laughs> Food do, I need porn. To, do I need to speak slower and yeah, lower? Speak slower. No, that's creepy. And and whatever it's maple, fun. It's a maple. It's fun. Bourbon glazed, bacon sugared bacon. No, that's not sexy. Punchki. No, you need to stop. Stop. Mm. No, no one's turned on. No, someone's gagging. No, stop. Okay. Mm. Okay. Anyway, so anyway, that's what's happening today, and it's fun. So it's donuts for dinner tonight. This is this is the high point of our day. The food's the high point of any of my day. Well, this is actually the high point of our day right now. What we're doing. Because why, Amber? Because we talked to Michael Anthony Gagliardi. Now, we had him back on the show around... Uh, September. September. Last year. It was yeah. uh, first it was, day it of was, fall, I remember, on because I just listened to, re-listened to the show today. Yeah, so, it was myself and Michael. You, yeah, uh, you, I had you to could, suddenly work. You had so, to work that night. Michael... He's, he's written another book. Has two books. Yes. Yeah. Devil Take the Hindmost Part 1... Yeah. And two, and they two just came out like late last year, also like not like October of last year. Uh, and he, him, and I talked a while back, and he's like, you know, would you like to chat again? And I'm like, oh, I'd love to chat again because we had a, yeah. I mean, we had a very, I thought a fantastic conversation about his experiences. Well, he do, he documented in Devil Takes the Hindmost Part. Yeah, one. and they're very interesting to read because I, I can't imagine growing up whether you believe it to be demonic possession or not in regards to what was wrong with his mother or yeah. if you're someone who might just look at it under the scope of mental illness either way michael suffered trauma yeah that no kid should have to deal with and in the second book he kind of goes over just how you cope with that as as you're oh, an adult well, how you how you came out of that and, then, and, yeah, and how you continue how you to, to work with, with it and as he says yeah. in the show too it's like you never get over this it's not gone well no, and you know i didn't say that that you know when we talked to him but i'll say it now and it's something i always say to people it's something i've learned 
mental trauma, mental damage, whatever mental issues a person has, it isn't a switch you can turn off. No. It isn't. I learned that. I 10, 15 years ago, I, I thought that, and I was so wrong. And I know now, dealing with the things I deal with on a daily basis, that you don't, you can't turn it off. It's something you, you all you can do is cope. Well, and that's all this, this, this man's trying to do, Michael's trying to do, is cope with this stuff. Now. Yeah. And, and they're really fascinating stories. And like I said, whatever your beliefs are, um, they're interesting and yeah. spooky. I know we touched on this a little bit during the talk, but if anyone out there wants to be highly disturbed by anything demonic, if you have never listened to the sounds of... Oh, what was I wrote her name down? It was Michelle Annalise. I think that's how they say it. It's yeah. not Michael. It's Michelle Annalise. Michelle Annalise, yeah. Ugh. And Michael talked about this a little it's, bit on the it's, show. It's terrifying. The, I remember we were at a conference in in Michigan somewhere. In the old days? In the old days. Yeah. And someone did a presentation on possession. And they played those clips. I had never heard them because it wasn't a topic I was into researching that much because I'm not a religious person. So I just kind of chalked up yeah. that to, well, that's an area of religion and I don't care about that. Yeah. And the first time they played those clips of that voice that sounds like there's five voices in one was just like the chills. And it did make me wonder from that point on what happens in people that get branded demonically possessed that these sounds and things come out of them or how they all seem to have an aversion to holy objects and have these similarities across the board that they do. Anyway, we could probably go on and on about all the characteristics of demonic possession, but enjoy our conversation with Michael Anthony Gagliardi. Like today, the world is kind of possessed. What do you think, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> with everything that has been going on the past two years, now with uh, things start to finally lighten old, up a little bit here with well, the COVID thing. Yeah, but then like. we have good old uh, Putin coming P- Putin, in and uh, yeah, yeah. Putty coming in and uh, you know but we're doing not horrible things we're not in Ukraine. Show. Yeah. So it just no, we're not. But that's just what the state of the world is right now, and it's it, got and everything it, turned upside down. And it, it really does is. feel like it's turned upside down. And so we have back on our show Michael Anthony Gagliardi, who we had on in September. Yeah. And so we're going to talk a little bit about possession tonight. Yeah. And I know our show, our last few shows have been a little more frivolous and fun, and we're going to get a little more serious on this one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's just... That's the. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And you're just going to deal with <laughs> you're that. You're going to have to deal with it, people. <laughs> and it's not going to be. I don't think everything we're going to talk about is going to be sad. But Michael has been through it. Um, oh, he man. he's experienced the more negative side of the paranormal. After having lived with a mother who was demonically possessed as a child, Michael lived in terror 
of what his mother would do next. I can't imagine being a kid wondering what your parent is going to do next that is going to freak you out. Yeah. From pouring hot soup on him, beating herself daily with a log, chasing his <sighs> sister with a butcher knife, yeah. down to setting fires in their own home and being institutionalized twice, no child deserves to grow up in a world where this is their reality. But this was Michael's reality. Yeah. So we have him back on the show to talk about part two yeah. of his biography that he has written about his life or his autobiography about his life, yeah. living in this kind of situation. Devil Take the Hindmost, part two, the aftermath yeah. is really exploring him as now a young man and dealing with How do you deal with this? So welcome yeah. to the show, Michael. We're glad to have you back. Well, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Um, it's it's uh, very um, therapeutic for me to be able to uh, talk about uh, the second book because a lot of people ask me, you know, you know, everything you went through. And then when, when, you know, when I was 19, you know, the first book ends off, I was 19. I left, I left my hometown and was homeless in California. Yeah. And pe people would ask me, you know, well, you must have had such a relief. And the only relief that I experienced is, was that, you know, it was sunny and warm out. It only took me 10 minutes to be lying on the beach feeling carefree before it all sat upon my shoulders again and realized that this wasn't the end. This was just the beginning of my story. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's, as you said, I mean, you're, this is where you're at, 19 years old. You're in a warm place. Uh, you're homeless. And I think some people, you know, they, they would if some people I know would start on that with that first step and be like, oh, my God, I'm homeless. This is the worst thing. And yeah, I think a lot of people don't want to be nobody wants to be homeless. But I think you I mean, what was your attitude? I guess I want to ask you about it at that point. How did you feel? Uh, obviously, coming out of what you came out of. Uh, did you feel like you were in a horrible place then? Or did you feel like, well, anything's better than where I was at? Yeah, there's right? something to look forward <laughs> there's to. There's something to look forward to. I mean, how, how did you feel about that? What was your attitude? Well, just just traveling on the bus, uh, knowing that my final destination was Santa Monica, the pier, only because I had watched, you know, Three's Company for so many mm -hmm. years and the, uh, <laughs> you know, the beginning intro where, where you show them on the pier and coming out of the store with their T-shirts at the beachcomber. Mm, yeah. And then as they're walking away, you see in the uh, in the background, way in the background above the bridge, the pier of the, the bridge of the pier, you see it's a Howard Johnson's or a Hope Motel 6 or something like that. And uh, that is what caught my eye. And I thought to myself, you know, you know, even if this was, you know, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood production, that that probably was a true spot. And that would probably wasn't a set. And so that's what I set my sights on because, you know, we didn't have the Internet back then. And and uh, so fast forward to being on the bus and I'm, you know, all I'm thinking of is Three's Company and, you know, the shots on the beach. And I'm just about to see this. And for a 19 year old kid from a tiny town in Canada, you know, I was as naive as you could get. I mean, uh, you know, the only thing that was running through my mind was just to connect to mm -hmm. connect with something that was 3,000 miles away from me that I knew was real, and that was the pier. And as soon as I got dropped off at the bus the, the bus station, they dropped me off, I was right outside the pier there because it drops you off right on um, right on PCH there. Right, at, You're like above the pier, mm -hmm. and you got to take the stairs and go downstairs. 
you know, to the pier, who, you know, people from Southern California, you know, understand that. But, uh, and there it was, there it was the pier. And it was, uh, you know, it was an October or uh, April day. It was the Monday after, after Easter Sunday. And there was nobody on the beach. It was very early. And I went out on the beach, you know, I went out on the beach. There were very light waves. And I, I had a, a, tan adidas bag with me i put it down on the ground i sat down i took my shoes off i took my socks off i put my feet in the sand put my hands behind my head and i lay down my head on my adidas bag and that was the first time in 19 years that i had peace uh and knowing that you know my mother wasn't going to attack me i didn't have to worry about anything at that moment and what was going through my mind was that it was a it was wonderful to know that no one on the planet knew where i was because we didn't have cell phones back in this is 1987 yeah and uh i just i had this moment of just utter peace like i've never had before and it lasted probably 15 20 minutes and then you know like a brick wall it hit me now what do i do yeah. you know and Reality. It, it did it it, it I was relishing this, you know, this epiphany of being, you know, I had always dreamed of going to California and now here I am in California being homeless. It never even entered my mind as a problem. I mean, I was 19 year old, 19 years old. I was healthy. You know, I was six feet, one inch tall. You know, I could handle myself, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, at that point, you know, being homeless, anything that that really didn't even, you know, for what I went through, that was a minor infraction of my life at that point just knowing that i was three thousand miles away from all of that stuff was an amazing feeling i had no bills you know but then on the other hand i had no friends i had no home i had nothing but it didn't really bother me until about 20 minutes later and then the realization of yeah you're here now what and that kind of slammed me in the face <laughs> I, I feel like someone was still looking out for you because you you found a place to stay. It wasn't super easy, but you found uh, kind of a little angel that you ended up marrying. And I love this part of the story in the beginning because the first person that you meet, I, I like the image of, of, of you, Michael, on the Sunset Strip. And in and in Hollywood in that era with your red jean tight jeans on and your long hair, and <laughs> yeah. and I'm I'm imagining how exciting this is because were you into kind of the rock or metal scene of the '80s that kind of music? Oh, to totally, I had okay. long hair. Yep. Yep. I was you know I was six foot one, 126 yep. pounds. You know I looked like Eddie Van Halen. Everybody <laughs> thought I was Eddie Van Halen everywhere I went, and you know that was kind of interesting. But you know that was like the second or third night when I got to Hollywood, but when I was on the pier, you know, as you probably read in the book that that's where I, a whole bunch of stuff happened within 24 hours yeah. when I was there, yeah. I got all my stuff ripped off. I was in a Charles Bronson movie. <laughs> there was a girl trying to get close to me to take me behind the beachcomber. So these two thugs could steal my stuff, uh, you know, and yep. I ended up staying up all night, chasing around a drug dealer who took my, whose partner took my stuff. You know, I mean, there was just it was never ending. I mean, I must have looked like an easy target because it, it wasn't 10 minutes of, you know, being out there that night, 
you know, when everything was going on before all of this happened, you know, a drug dealer came up to me, started talking to me, you know, he, he probably saw that I was naive and, and from out of town, I must've been easy to spot. I like your story and, and the connection you make kind of with, with your life experience and, and getting uh, taken advantage of right away. Cause these, these guys that take your bag, lock it in their car Say, yes. oh, let's let's go walk around. Let's go hang out. Let's do stuff. And then you realize yeah. these guys aren't going to give my bag back and I have to follow yes. them. And you mentioned that your time living with a mother in such an unpredictable, volatile household sort of kind of gave you the advantage to like these guys weren't going to get away with this because you're like, yeah, I'm used to staying up. I have insomnia. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah. <laughs> I have no problem staying at Denny's and watching you with a cup of coffee for like the next six hours. And yes. so it's strange how some of that negativity in your past did help you in this weird well, brief was, moment. Was instincts, though, it was too. instinct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I do like yeah. that part of the story because I just I really just saw it all playing out. And I was like, oh, what a little badass at that moment. <laughs> well, I, I, it was like a superpower to tell you the truth, because <laughs> I knew I knew, you know, I was this guy was not going to get away. And he tried running away, you know, all through the night. You know, we ended up at Denny's, I think, till three o'clock in the morning. And then I ended up, you know, following on to the him onto the beach. He started hitting on some girl. And, you know, I always stayed about 30 or 40 feet back, you know, f behind him. So if he tried to make a run for a car or something like that, I had him cut off. But, you know, it was just like a James Bond movie. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there on the grass. He's trying to hit on or on the sand. He's trying to hit on this girl. And, and I'm looking up at the pier and, you know, on the pier, they have these little scopes. You put a quarter in and you can look at the people on the beach and stuff like that. It's up on the pier. So you're looking down on the sand of the people on the beach. And I see his partner looking through one of the scopes. And then he looks up to look at me and then he starts running. And that's when I got up out of the sand and I started running. And I was like, OK, I got you now. And, you know, he was he was probably six, three, 200 pounds. But I acted like as crazy as my mother. And I caught him at the car. And I grabbed him. I grabbed him by his shirt, threw him up against the car. And, and, and you know, I was going all crazy on him mm -hmm. and he wanted no part of it. And so it was it was like a superpower, yeah. you know, and I did. He did give me my stuff back. Um, they had gone. They had rifled through it. But, um, you know, I was, a, a, you know, an ever thinking, you know, 19 year old that I had unstitched the lining inside my Adidas bag. And put my travelers, I had a thousand dollars in travelers checks and I slipped them into the inner lining of it. And, you know, they rummaged through everything. There was some stuff missing, but, you know, like a deodorant, it's you know, stuff that was doesn't mean anything to me. Replaceable. Yeah. But uh, my money was still there and that's all that mattered. And when I got my ba bag back, I mean, I didn't even return to the beach. I went straight, straight to um a bus stop and then asked the bus driver when he came, what bus do I take to West Hollywood? you know, where the Sunset Strip is and that, you know, I was so motivated and uh, I'm not going to say ambitious, but, you know, it it's very interesting. You know, when you when I was coming out of what I was coming out of, nothing was impressive to me. These guys weren't impressive. They weren't scary. You know, I saw through them, you know, because I was on such hyper awareness. I had this hyper. I was like a Spartan. By that time, yeah, you know, I had already gone through 15 years of, 
you know, diligent, diligently looking and scavenging for food, you know, doing my own laundry since I was seven years old, you know, stealing food, stealing money. So I was very capable, you know, of handling myself and, and being homeless or anything, you know, having people, I, I, I didn't expect it, but everybody told me when I left, Oh man, you better watch out. You know, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I was so naive, but that's exactly what happened. I mean, when I went out on the strip at nighttime, because when I got there in the morning and then I went walking around the town in the afternoon, you know, spent the time in, in the town, you know, just, you know, a block from the beach, there's all kinds of shops and, you know, there's a promenade there. So you can sit there, grab a drink and sit there all day. And then it wasn't by the time till night started coming where I went out on the beach or went out on the pier. And I mean, it's I was only there 10 minutes and all of a sudden I'm in a Charles Bronson movie, you know, as an extra, you know, hey, kid, come here, (laughs) you know, and, you know, and after, you know, 20 minutes after that, when they got the shot, some girl comes and sits beside me and she's trying to, you know, she's all over me trying to get me to go behind this beachcomber place that you see on three's company uh, then that's so ironic you know and i see two guys that are watching and soon as i look at them and make on to eye contact they both look away so i was aware of the game you know and uh and that was it and i got up and i i walked away and i was watching the rest of the filming it was death wish for charles bronson <laughs> and i was watching the rest of it and then that's where a drug a drug dealer came up to me and started talking to me you know, hey, are you in a band and all that? You know, he says all the right things, you know. And of course, you know, being from a small town and I'm Canadian, so I'm extremely polite. So I tell <laughs> him the truth. You know, I tell him the truth. Oh, yeah, I just got here from Canada and, you know, I'm 19. I don't know anybody. You know, I just, you know, I look back on that and I think, man, I was just ripe for the pickings, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, I really believe, I really believe that, um, that the Lord watched out yeah, for me because. Yeah. I mean, that first night I was down underneath the pier and I saw hundreds, if not more, of wallets and purses that were all torn up and emptied and then thrown under the pier. So there was a network of guys working on top of the pier, pickpocketing the tourists, you know, and then throwing the 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 you know, yeah, the just, purses and stuff underneath the pier. There was a whole bunch of them. There were sunglasses, there were purses, there were handbags, wallets, you name it. You yeah. know, so I, I was very, very clued in to what was going on, you know. Well, and then you, how long did it take for you to meet Sherry? That night. That was that night. Okay, okay. When I got on the bus, when I got on the bus, I was at the corner and if you're from los angeles and you know the sunset strip you'll know what i'm talking about doheny and sunset boulevard and gill turner's is there it's a famous liquor store that's been there for 50 60 years uh, actually when gazaris and all those clubs opened up it's been there since and it's been a namesake there for for forever and anyone who has you know been to the sunset strip in the 60s 70s 80s even the nineties would know of that place. Well, there's a, there's a bus stop there. You know, there's a, um, you know, the bus, you know, the bench. <clears throat> and that's where I got dropped off and I got dropped off there. I think it was four o'clock in the afternoon. The sun was still up and you know, the club didn't open up till <clears throat> at least eight o'clock. So I went up to Gil Turner's and I got a, you know, diet root beer and one of those 25 cent pies, I think it was. And I just sat at the, 
the RTD bus stop and every bus that came by, I just waved them on until nighttime came. <laughs> and then when nighttime came, I saw people starting to come out, you know, like bugs. It was really weird because yeah. back then, you know, the strip, you know, by nighttime, you know, it was 10 people thick on the, on the sidewalk. You'd have to walk in the street. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And I was there when, whereas not a soul on the sunset strip, and later that night, it just started to pile in. And so I walked over to Gazari's and I was standing in front of Gazari's. You know, Gazari's is where Van Halen used to play. There were the house band there <clears throat> for five or six years. And, you know, everybody kind of made it out of there. Motley Crue, Iron Butterfly, Guns N' Roses. You know, everybody, everybody played there. <clears throat> so I'm standing outside there. And then this girl comes up to me. And, you know, I, I got to set the picture for you. I'm 19 years old. I'm six foot one. I'm 126 pounds with a 26 inch waist. I've got red jeans, tight skin, tight red jeans on and a calf leather, you know, Bon Jovi type ish jacket. It's white and it's got all the fringes and <laughs> stuff on, on it. And I'm standing there <clears throat> and oh, actually, I actually fit right in. But uh, this girl comes up to me and she says, would you buy me a bottle? And I'm think first of all, you know, I'm, it's racing through my mind, a bottle of what? <laughs> I was thinking like Pepto-Bismol or something. And I'm like, a bottle of what? Because I don't drink, you know, and I didn't drink back then either. So, you know, my mind raced for a minute there and I, you know, distinguished what she was talking about. And I told her, listen, I'm not, I'm not 21. I'm not old enough, I think, because I didn't know what the age was. The age to drink in Canada was 19 at the time. And I believe in California, it was 21. So I just said, hey, I'm not I'm not old enough to, you know, to buy you something. And she walked away and I didn't pay any. You know, I wasn't there for girls. I was there to get in a band, you know, and then I the, as the night progressed on, I heard people talking about the Ozzy Osbourne audition because they were replacing uh, Jakey Lee. And I was thinking to myself, oh, I got to get to that audition. So she came up to me again and asked me, are you sure? And I said, I said, listen, I'm, I'm not 21. And she kept talking to me and I'm like, oh my God, you know, leave me alone, <laughs> you know? And, and I, you really, I just wanted her to go away. And then I said, well, Hey, do you know anything about the Ozzy Osbourne audition? She says, no, but I can find out because she was the, um, the back then we did mailers Bands did mailers and you got people's physical address, not their email address. And you sent them flyers when your band was playing on the strip. So she said, listen, I'm working for the band tonight. I don't remember who they were. And she goes, let me ask around. So I'm still standing there. I'm like, yeah, great, whatever. So she goes asking around and uh, she actually finds out, you know, yeah, there's there's an audition. But no one would tell her where the audition was because uh, friends of hers told her that they wanted a local musician, somebody from L.A. to get the part, which happened to be Zach Wilde. Oh, so, yeah. But, you know, me and a whole bunch of other guys were trying to get into the audition. And uh, she said, you know what? I can't I, I'm not getting anything from everybody. Everybody's really tight lipped about it. She goes, well, let me buy you a ticket and we'll go into Gazari's and watch the band. And, you know, I got nothing to do. <laughs> I'm homeless. So. <laughs> I said, you know what? Okay, that's fine. So I, we walk in, you know, we're watching the band and whatever, and it's, you know, it's louder than hell and I can't hear anything. And, you know, that, it, that to me, I wasn't even into that. I wasn't, I wasn't a bar person. I wasn't, I was a musician. I just happened to have long hair. 
you know, I wasn't this, you know, yeah, I'm a rocker and I got to get into this rock scene. I was just a musician and wanted to play music. That's all. And having it play loud. So I guess I kind of fit in. So, Mm. but none of that was my, my, I didn't like the whole poison thing and warrant. Uh, By the way, those bands asked for us to open for them, which was funny in the (laughs) next year. (laughs) But uh, yeah, uh, we went into the club and then, you know, we were talking for a while and then, I think at one point she started crying and I felt bad for her. You know, I'm this naive 19 year old kid is super sensitive, you know? So I went and I held her. I didn't know what to do. You know, I held her and I guess she took that as a very, a positive, uh, positive sign. And by the end of the night, she was asking me, well, where are you going to go? I said, I, you know, where do you live? We can drive you home. And I said, I don't live anywhere. And she says, well, listen, I live with my mom Let's go back. We'll tell my mom some crazy story like uh, your sister dropped you off and never came and picked you back up and you can stay at my house. And that night when I went back to her house, I never left. And we've been together 36 years. I love that. I love that. I think that's fun. I feel like she was just like the little angel that was sitting in California waiting for you to get there. Totally. And you won't believe how many things that she taught me. I mean, I never had a model of love, you Mm. know, in my in my life. My dad was absent. You know, my mom, my mother was her deal. And I I never knew what love was, but she showed me. She showed me through through loving me, through the way she just obsessed and loving our kids and our grandkids. She was my model for that. And she she's been the greatest model for love that I've ever seen. And and I, I give her all the credit is that she taught me what love looked like. Well, you know, and there's some things that that come out of this, you know, this part of the story that I, that I, you know, it has me thinking about things and just, it's more just an observation of this. And I've, because I've seen this with other people too, and how you landed just, just where we're at so far, how you landed, I think is fantastic because it's clear that it was like, I don't care. And you already said this, like, I don't care where how this is going to pan out. I just need to get out. I need to go somewhere else and get away from the situation I'm in. And it don't matter. It, it don't matter where, and I'll figure it out as I go along. Right. Um, I think a lot of people and including myself too, I've said this a lot on this show over the years. I, I try to control things a lot. And that's one of the things I've tried to grow into over the years is try to be less controlling of things and let things just kind of happen as they, they may naturally happen, right? And that's why I think this is so so interesting and so cool is that, yeah, you left for a reason. You wanted to get somewhere, uh, but you didn't have a plan really, though. And, that, you know, as, to some no. people, Michael, that's, that's terrifying. To me 10 years ago, that's absolutely terrifying. But now I think it's super interesting, right? I think it's super cool. And... It worked. I mean, obviously it worked out. It worked out. It worked out beautifully, in my opinion. But you didn't know in those first 20 minutes you said that. But you had that moment of peace, though. And that's the other part. That's the other part. Go ahead. Go ahead. The interesting thing about it is that I had planned to leave for California with four other guys. And it was a year plan from April to April. I think it was around April where. I came up with the idea and then, you know, we had, I think three other guys that wanted to come along, you know, they had dead end lives too, and they just wanted to leave. But as it grew closer, when it got to the last month, everybody bailed. And then on the last week, the last few days, I think it was the last week, 
the last guy bailed and it was just me. And, and, you know, I was, I had much resolve about it that I was like, I'm going, I'll see you guys later. If I ever see you again, mm-hmm. it's not going to stop me that you guys are, are, are not coming with me because, you know, there's safety in numbers. And I think for them, but you know, they didn't have, they had jobs. And so they had things to lose. I had nothing to lose, you know, being homeless in California in April was an upgrade for me. Yeah. You know, and, and as, as weird as that sounds, I, I know, I know it's terrifying. It, it sounds terrifying, but I had no, <clears throat> the only terrifying moment I had was when I was in, um, I was in Missouri, I believe. And I had to change buses and I was, you know, I was in the South, the South part. And I was the only white guy well, partially white guy. I'm Italian. Mm-hmm. You know, I was the only, you know, guy in, in the, in the, uh, the bus stop, I think it was two o'clock in the morning and it got to me and I was like, it hit me. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. And I, I actually went over to the phone, picked the phone up, put the money in and started to call my dad and say to come pick me up. And just as I was doing that and it was connecting, I was hearing my dad yell at me and getting mad at me. I knew this was going to happen, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And that's when I hung up the phone. As soon as it started ringing, I hung up up the phone. I turned around and I had this great resolve and I went and stood in line. I was the first person waiting at the bus line to, to get on the bus. And I just stood there and I was completely stone faced and ready to do this. You know, so I did have my moment of weakness and I, I'm not quite sure, you know, what it was. I think just the 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 aspect of, you know, never leaving, mm-hmm. never leaving Canada. <laughs> you know, I had been nowhere. You know, I've been nowhere. Yeah. I had once gone on a vacation to um, to Alberta when I was little. I don't know, six or seven years old, but that didn't really count. You know, that's not something that shaped or molded me or anything. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I hadn't been out of Ontario. Pretty much, you know, I'd been a little bit to Quebec and, you know, that kind of thing, but I hadn't been anywhere. So I I'd never even been in a restaurant before. Up until that point at 19 years old, I had never gone to a restaurant. You know, there, there were so many things like that, that I was so socially inept yeah. about. I couldn't talk on the phone. You know, my wife, and who was my girlfriend at the time, she had to talk on the phone for me. I couldn't make phone calls because I was I was socially inept. I just couldn't talk to people. I was so shy. And, you know, you know, if you read my in the first book about how I grew up, you know, with the Jehovah's Witness thing, Mm -hmm. I was always stared at every morning. Every morning I had to march out in front of the class and go stand out in the hallway because of the Lord's Prayer and the National Anthem. Mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to participate in that. And the kids always ridiculed me and laughed. and, And I did that for years every day. So I was used to being stared at and ridiculed and that made me socially inept. I was not able to, I thought the world was watching me. The world was looking at me. Oh, what a fool. Yeah. You know, what an idiot. And I still haven't overcome that. Yeah. I'm that's, 54 yeah. years old. That's social anxiety. You know, a lot. Of, and that's, that's hard to get over when you have that. It's, it's tricky. Uh, especially given our pandemic we just had when they're like, okay, now it's going to be dangerous to go to go out amongst people and stand in crowds. But I, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. I'm curious, while while you were living with your mother, your, your, your parents, they were divorced, correct? No, they were, 
you know, they weren't anything. They were still married. Okay. Okay. But my dad was living in Toronto and coming back on the weekend for four hours, five hours on the weekend, and then going back down to Toronto. So he basically spent six days a week down there. He came up on a Friday, Friday evening and left on a Sunday afternoon. So he was only there Saturday. Okay. So So, how did your mother act around your father? Well, this was interesting is that, uh, you know, for the very short time that he was, you know, in the house, her, her whole attitude focused toward him when he came in, when he was in the room, she would prophesy and say she knew what she was, what he was doing, what he was up to his fornications and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, to a kid, when I was sitting there listening, it was embarrassing to hear that, but she was, and later I found out he had a girlfriend and those are the exact things that she was saying is what really was going on. And I didn't find out that, you know, for a few years after that, but uh, you know, she would say all kinds of things, what he was doing. And that's one thing that my mother did that ticked off one of the boxes of the uh, you know, the demonically possessed thing was that she knew things that she shouldn't have. She knew where I was. She knew what I was doing. The first time I tried smoking, I covered it up with all kinds. Took a, I went and jumped in the in the bay, and went swimming. Washed my clothes, but you know, gum, sucrets, everything in my <laughs> mouth, everything. Didn't come back for nine hours, and she told me when I walked in, "You've been smoking." Oh, oh. And I was like, "What the hell?" <laughs> you know. And, and and that's the only thing she said said to me and then went back to her craziness, yelling and screaming and doing everything. And this is one thing she did. And my sister, who is seven years older than me, she told me that she predicted Kennedy's assassination and a bunch of other stuff. You know, I was little. She was she's older than me and she remembers all that stuff because she was around. Yeah. You know, but but uh, when all this started, my sister told me that, oh, yeah, she had predicted a whole bunch of things, the Sharon Tate murders, and then pinned them on me later on when I was a teenager, you know, very bizarre uh, um, uh, conversation I had with her, you know, and uh, just crazy things like that, you know, but she she knew. And, uh, you know, let me tell you, she was five foot three and she weighed like 280 pounds and couldn't even walk down the street and back. Wow. I mean, she terrorized all the neighbors, but it's there's no way she could have walked into town or or seen something or she wasn't physically able to do that. You know, she was uh, grandly obese, you know, and she was in extremely poor health. I mean, by the time she died, she died at 46 years old with no gray hair. Wow. Yeah, she died at 46. She actually died on the day that I left for California. I, I found that really interesting that it was sort of yeah, um, to touch on that a bit of a release in a weird way. Like you finally go this way. She goes another way. And how you mentioned that when you get the phone call that they found your mom's body, you you have this moment where you finally see your mother is human and not this demonically yeah. possessed, horrible person. Yes. And you, you have a moment where you kind of break down and cry because loss is loss and she was still your mother. Yes, yes. And, you know, that's the only thing that kept me kept me from doing something because I was losing my mind. By the time I was in 10th grade in high school, 
that's when I began like signing myself out of class and you know, not, not showing up for three or four days. I'd show up to school and then write my own note in my own handwriting with my own signature on it. And they would just kind of look at me and not say anything. They pulled me out one time to ask me about it. And they asked me, they didn't say anything about the notes, but the one teacher, this is as close to I got to anyone trying to get involved. She asked me, it was my English homeroom teacher. Uh, she asked me, is everything okay at home? And I said, sure, why not? And she said, okay. Yeah. And I walked out. That was as close as anyone ever tried to get involved in our family. Even the police. I mean, if you read the book, you know, the police were at my house all the time. The firemen were at the, all the time. She was going to the neighbor's house, telling them she was going to cut their heads off in, in different voices. Uh, and, you know, and they were calling the cops all the time, you know, and nothing ever came about. It. And then she attempted murder on my sister. Me went to the mental institution and then they brought her right back. Wow. How can you do that? That I know. You know, where was social services? Exactly. Social services. They were trying to convince me to run away wow. that, because they didn't know what to do. See, that was the thing. They didn't they had a diagnosis about her that was beyond their scope of understanding and they didn't know what to do. That's why they kept returning her. And, you know, what if I had what if she had had uh, succeeded in killing me? Because after that first scenario where she tried to kill my sister, my sister left. That was the that was the straw that broke her back. She was gone. Mm -hmm. She moved down to Toronto and stayed with my grandmother. I was still a minor. But yet they brought her back. And they knew she was coming back. They informed us she was coming back. I don't even know how that happens, whether it was 1970s or the 80s. I don't understand how that happens. And I've tried to talk to lawyers in Canada over the last several months. I've been in contact with them. They don't, they don't even know what to do. They don't even know how to, how to approach that situation. They're like, well, maybe we could wrap it up in something of uh, – indigenous peoples, you know, being harassed. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They said, listen, it's so far out there. We don't know how to, we don't know how to reel it in. And, and that's how it was in the seventies and in the eighties, they didn't know what to do with me. And I was even sarcastic when I had an interview with the social services. I said, so what you're telling me is that I, nothing's really going to happen unless I come to you with a knife in my back. Sure. And that those were the exact words I said. You know, and they just kind of, well, you know, they placated me and, you know, said, said some, you know, things to try to get me to calm down because I was angry. I was angry why no one was trying to rescue me. And, you know, that had an impact on me on my adulthood because I believed I had no value. Yeah. No one was willing to fight for me. My parents, social services, the police, the fire department, the mental institution, no one wanted to fight for me. So and, and I, I still to this day, I can't I can't reconcile that in my heart. I, 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 I don't understand why I was so invaluable that no one wanted to get involved. It just blows my mind even today at 54 years old. Well, and in your second book and your part two here with you trying to kind of grapple with with this this part of, of this this issue. When did you start to talk to Sherry about everything that went on in your life? And and I'll, wait, I want to backtrack. I have one question, real quick. How, when, what age were you at when you or any family member came to the conclusion that your mom was possessed? What brought you to that? Uh, 
to that idea? Metaphor, that, metaphor, that's a great question. It didn't happen until 30 years later. Okay, okay. You see, we were completely isolated. And no one wanted, no one ever mentioned, um, I think you need to see a, uh, a priest sure. or okay. uh, some, some religious authority needs to come in. Because no one knew. We were completely isolated other than the authorities, the police, the mental institution, and the fire department. I don't know if the fire department were, that, that might be conjecture on my part, whether they knew what was going on or not. I don't know. They were trying to put the fire out in the house while she was hitting the hitting herself with a log and screaming and yelling and no one took notice of her, which was incredible because I was standing right there when it happened. But, uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. But, you know, it's it's the authorities that completely suppressed it. I mean, even the neighbors knew. All the neighbors knew something was wrong. And I'll, I'll tell you a little tiny piece of information that was amazing to me. And it's like a it's like a great movie, to tell you the truth. When I finally went back to that town in 2005, I went with my wife and my two kids who were like, uh, I think they were seven and nine years old. And we parked on that street out just down the road a bit from my house because I was creeped out by the house. We parked at the creek that was right, you know, my next door neighbor's house. We parked there and I was standing out there. I was standing out there and all of a sudden one of the neighbors came out and said, Michael, and I walked over to him and I said, Mr. Mr. And I said his name. He goes, yeah. He goes, how are you? Wow. And I'm standing there talking to him. He's in the very same clothes that I remember him as a kid. <laughs> he, he was in he was in rubber boots and this yellow slicker that he used to wear because he used to work in his garden all the time. And then one by one, everyone else on the street came out and came over to his house, realizing that that was me. Wow. And they were all standing there talking to me, saying, what happened to you was horrible. You know, we don't really understand what happened, but they were all witnesses and they all stood there while my wife was standing there. And they said to me, you know, what happened to you was so wrong. It's so good to see you that you moved, you were able to carry on and, you know, not kill yourself or something, you know, and you have a wife and kids. And that was extremely therapeutic for me because she, she harassed and terrorized them as well. Yeah. And they were all alive in 2005 when I when I came back there. And it was really it was really amazing to see them congregate around me, you know, in, in this guy's driveway. It was incredible. So who did you start talking to then that, again, that helped you arrive to this conclusion that like there, there was my mom was possessed? <laughs> like... Well, here, here's what happened. Here, the, the progression happened when I came and I was 19. I came to California. I was homeless. Okay. Everybody asks me, wasn't that a great relief? And I say, no, right. it was not a relief. Now I'm, now I have all the responsibility. Now I got to live like an adult and I couldn't do that. So by the time I was 23 years old, I had a complete nervous breakdown. I had a complete breakdown and I just wanted to die. That's when I started becoming uh, a chronically depressed and after a number of years of being chronically depressed, I finally was admitted uh, on suicide watch at Loma Linda because I wanted to kill myself and I was going to do it. I mean, I'd be I'd be doing crazy things like going and sitting out in the desert at three o'clock in the morning, just sitting on the sand way out in the middle of the desert and have packs of coyotes all around me trying to snip at me. And I didn't care. I was just sitting there. 
you know, Mm -hmm. and God protected me then too, because I didn't care. I didn't care if they all attacked me or what, you know, that's, that's how far gone I was. And then once I started, I started to get on some medication. I, I wanted help after the Loma Linda thing. I wanted help. They got me on, on, um, I think back then it was Prozac was the first thing. And that gave me a little window because I, I, you know, I can't even explain how messed up I was, how I, I wasn't, I'm not saying my behavior was crazy, but it was the way I thought that was not normal. You know, everyone was out to get me. Everyone was watching me. I had to like, I lived in like a Spartan. I had to forage. I was still foraging back then. I was taking fruit off trees and filling it with, you know, in bags and, you know, taking 40 plums to work, you know, because I was painting <laughs> at the time because I stole them off our tree outside or the neighbor's tree. I mean, I, I, I was just living like an animal still, you know, and once I got a little window where I was able to think clearly, then I was thinking to myself, what the hell is wrong with me? It's not, it wasn't till I began to question myself because what I, what happened, I didn't think it wasn't normal. Sure. It, it took me decades to realize that what happened to me wasn't normal. And when I started to going to psychiatrists, psychiatrists were just putting their hands up to me and saying, I, I, I'm not equipped for this. You'll have to, I'm sorry, but you'll have to find somebody else. This is, you know, way over my head. And then I was beginning to think, what, what is the hell is wrong with me? And then I began to think about my mother. I began to think about what she did, who she was, what she did. And then I began to start researching. And then I started putting the pieces all together. And she had all the earmarkings of what demonic, complete demonic possession was. Which, what are those? Well, um superhuman strength i saw that i saw her i saw a five five foot three inch woman who is grossly obese i mean with a belly hanging over her so far it's close to her knees she was grossly morbidly obese i saw her run up a flight of stairs from a basement to to the uh um, top level of our house faster than I did because Ooh. I chased her. Ooh. And I was like, what the hell? I saw her grab my father who was five, eight, five, seven at the time, 170 pounds. I saw her grab him, throw him to the ground and just have her way with him, scratching him and yelling at him and screaming and growling. And my, my dad, like I said, he was, that's when he was in his forties. So he was very nimble and agile. Okay. There's one thing. She spoke in different languages when she was, she had these voices. She had many different voices. If you ever listen to the the uh, audio tapes of Annalise oh, Michelle, those are so disturbing. Ooh. That's what she sounded like. Oh. She had many voices that oh. sounded like that. Oh. And then she'd go and if you know the Ronald Doe case, where he started singing like a choir boy and whistling with the these very bright, robust uh, hymns and tunes. She would break into those. She would break into conversations, snarling back and forth at herself, you know, talking back and forth with all these different voices. I mean, those speaking in, and she was speaking in in different voices, speaking in other languages. And that disturbed me so much that as an adult, I started learning languages on my own because I couldn't stand the fact that I couldn't understand what she was saying. And I learned French, 
Italian, German, Arabic, and um, uh, Hebrew on my own. That was one of the results of the trauma because I couldn't understand what she was saying. And I would desperately was listening to her and it wouldn't make sense to me. And I would, you know, I'd go inches to her face and be yelling in her face, obscenities and stuff like that. And I couldn't even break her out of her conversations. It was like, I wasn't even there. Wow. She was completely tranced out, you know, but that was one of the things she spoke in different languages. She prophesied. She, there were things that she knew that she shouldn't have known. She was a housewife for God's sakes who stayed at home 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all her life. She never went nowhere, but she knew many things that she shouldn't have. You know, Mm. she, she, you know, these voices, everything. She had all the earmarks, all the earmarks. And, and she, she, and we heard, I heard the banging, the knocking in the house, the scratching. And she, she even told me on two accounts, on two accounts was the only time I remember her ever talking to me in a normal voice. She said to me, she looked at me straight in the eye. She said, they're running up the back of my spine and perching in my head. That's how they get in. And then then right back into it again. She would have a lucid moment for 30 seconds. She said that to me twice over a couple of years. It was the only time I heard her natural voice, except when she was talking to the police. That is so spooky. And also, like, I think on the last show, I remember you guys saying speech and gate. Like how, yes. like, like if you're looking yeah. at someone just on the street that. or yes. in a population, like you, what are the things about someone's speech or their gait that could be a sign that there's something lurking within them? Well, even my wife would tell you, I can tell people's dialects from what part of the country they're from because I recognize their gait. I recognize that nuance in their voice. You know, demon, uh, demons, they're entities. They are personable. They have locality. They know everything because they've been around for a long time. They say the same things. They have the same gait in their speech. They say the same vile things. They speak in scatology, which is they use, you know, um, swear words for crap and, you know, those kind of words. They speak in scatological terms all the time. All the time. Oh, my God. I work with a person like this. <laughs> yeah, probably. Oh my God. It, this explains everything, Michael. Okay, okay. I mean, all joking aside. <laughs> but, like, I it, I can listen to all the Annalise Michelle tapes, and uh, I can tell you, they're yeah. lying. That's truth. They're lying. I can hear the very same sentences in German that, that my mother spoke. I can hear the exact same ones. They say the exact same things, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they are personable. They're familiar, you know, they, they have, they have identities and those identities have natures attached to them. And those it's, it's no different than you'd know somebody who grew up in the South. They have an identity, they have a nature, they have a gate to their speech. They have similar experiences, Mm -hmm. similar foods. It's the same thing with entities. You're able to tell and I can, I can listen to all the Annalise Michelle tapes. I've listened to them all. Oh, and I can tell you just listening right away. That's a lie. That's the truth. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. I hear the same people talking. I can tell they, they say the exact same things. So, 
like if if I was to walk into an insane asylum or someplace where they held mentally ill patients, I would be able to tell you in the room who was demonically possessed and who was mentally ill. And they would be able to tell who I was because of who lives inside of me. You see, the whole thing with my mother, my mother was not the target. My sister was not the target. I was the target. I was just going to ask if you felt like the things that were following your mom were coming after you. Oh, they were coming after her friends. Hmm. I mean, you can read it in the book. I tell you about her friends calling her from Niagara Falls, telling her that things were following her in the middle of the night and they were terrified. And they asked my mom to come for help. They brought me. She brought me with her and I overheard the conversation on the telephone. And I was like, you know, I think I wrote in the book, you know, out of the frying pan, you know, or out of the fire into the frying pan or something like that. But uh, I mean, I was shivering. I And to tell you the truth, when we went to aid this person, who I believe was another friend of hers that was a Jehovah's Witness, and I remember, I remember going there and I remember coming back, but I have no memories of being there because I shut down. I was so terrified that she was taking me because I heard her talking on the phone, all these things she was talking about. That's how I know them. I heard her talking on the phone. And then she said she was going to bring me. And I just went blank. And I have no memories of being there because, you know, kids have a way of dealing with things. And, you know, one of the ways they do, they deal with things is they, they shut it down. They they shut them out. They shut it out. They shut things out usually. This is the reason why you have people in their forties, you know, why are you coming out now about a priest that molested you when you were yeah. eight years old? Yeah. Well, because now it's affecting my life. And yeah. now I just figured it out. Because it that's was because it was so damn traumatic. That's the only way I could deal with it. Right. And you suppressed it for so long until you get. See, what happens is you get to a place in your life where as soon as you become comfortable, then that's when it comes out. Dude. Because now your body's saying, Okay, I'm comfortable. Now I can deal with this. And then it lets it out. I've had that's these, what yeah. happens. I've had these things happen to me, you know, I'm getting a little older now. And just uh, just thinking about what you're saying, Michael. And every once in a while, because I, I think at this point in my life, I, I do feel pretty content. I've worked a lot of years now. Um, you know, I've done a lot of things. I've, you know, I've achieved goals. I mean, all these things we do as people, you know, as we live our lives and you do to, I think a lot of people get to a certain point where they do feel that sense of contentment where you're comfortable. Right. And every once in a while, something will flash in my mind or I'll feel something just kind of roll over my body, like my mind. It can, it can be a cold sensation. It can be anything. Right. But it's something that does stir up things from my past and i mean i don't we're not gonna nearly we're not going into that shit tonight (laughs) it's not gonna happen Mm -hmm. but um you know i think any person you know we've all had our sense of trauma growing up right and i think i've noticed that happen to me since i turned 40 uh um i've had you know and that's kind of where i started feeling content about things i think and more comfortable and um I have these things just kind of roll over me every once in a while. And maybe that's what we're talking about here, Michael. I mean, I'm not trying to, yeah. but maybe it is my mind going, Hey dude, it's time, you know, you've, you've dealt with that other stuff that you wanted to deal with. Now it's time to deal with these things. You got to, you got to straighten out. Yeah. Well, anybody who's, who has uh, experienced 
you know, there, there, are, there are multiple traumas. There's childhood trauma. There's prolonged trauma. There's prolonged childhood trauma. There's adult trauma. Any trauma that you deal with or that you experience yeah. and are part of, you have to deal with it sooner or later because it's like a computer. You get that virus, you have to deal with it sooner or later. It'll corrupt. Yeah. It'll corrupt the computer. And oh. this is what happens, you know, neurologically with us. I mean, I'm passing, I was passing out left and right for two years and I'm like, what's going on? I'm not any more stressed than I'm, I normally am. Yeah. You know, it's just the body decides when it's going to deal with it. You're not even in control of it because if you, if you have child trauma, I mean, I'll tell you this, it changes your body chemistry. I didn't go through puberty until I was 21. Oh, really? It maligned my puberty until I was 21 years old. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, we, we it's proven over and over again that mental trauma, it always, man, it'll, it'll sooner or later manifest into physical trauma. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. And you have to deal with it. And no matter what age you are, I mean, you know, the, obviously the more trauma you experience to the worse it is and prolongated, you know, like they always say, and I've done much research on this to see how it'll end for me. But they always say prolonged childhood trauma leads to short deaths in in males, you know, because yeah. they can't, you know, they don't deal with trauma. I mean, I've got all the earmarks of it. I haven't been able to hold a job. You know, I have, you know, you know, I have blackout problems and, you know, stress issues. And, you know, I'm on medication because I can't go to sleep or else I'll stay up for four nights and die of sleep, sleep deprivation. Mm. My body won't shut down because I've been so hyper hypersensitized to fear and trauma, you know? I mean, I, my body just does its own thing. I, I, I have no, I have no control over it. Like yeah. to, today I was talking to off of uh, offline here that I was just sitting here on the couch and, and I felt the tunnel narrowing, Boop, my head went down, poof. I went out, I lifted my head up a couple seconds later and I looked out. at the clock to see if I was out for a half an hour or 20 minutes. But the body just, it, it deals with things on its own terms mm -hmm. when you get to that point, you know, but yeah. any trauma that anyone experiences, you've got to deal with it because it is like a cancer. It will stay inside of you and it might not come out for 20 or 30 years, but it will come out. Your That's a guarantee. Your yeah. story is extremely personal. Uh, it, it must not have been easy to write this down and know that you're sharing this with everyone, but what compelled you to do that? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, what, well, it went over COVID. I did it over COVID. And the reason why I did it was just for my kids because, you know, my kids, you know, they're in the thirties, they got little ones. We don't have time to sit down. Say, guess what happened to dad? Well, let me tell you about it. It's not something you can say over yeah. 15 yeah. minutes or dinner, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're constantly going, get off that, stop that, yeah. you know, come over here, you know, let me wipe your nose, you know, and I like, you know, it's endless. So, you know, my thing was to say, okay, this is what happened to dad. When it, when you're prepared to read, I mean, they know something happened and we've talked about it more now that the book came out. But they told me after I was like, you know, they kept asking me uh, as I was doing it. And they said, well, how's the book coming along? Oh, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm on, you know, chapter eight or nine or whatever. And they would tell me, they would just mention to me, Dad, you really should make this public. And, you know, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not really interested in that. And, you know, because it, quite quite honestly, it was fearful because if I made it public, I'd have people contacting me. Oh, you're a liar. You're telling you're trying to sell books and blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah, like I, if I want to sell books, I would have done it when I was 19 or 20 or 21 or 22 or oh, 23, yeah, you, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You could have got on Not Donahue. before. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, and the real nail in the coffin, uh, you know, I, I was kicking around the idea and then, and then I ended up, you know, taking a break from the book. I was almost done. And I threw on Netflix and I saw the documentary Hostage to the <laughs> Devil with Marty Stalker, who is the producer. And I watched that and I went, wow. And I'm listening to Marty speak, you know, cause he's, he narrates a lot of it, you know, and I'm listening to him and I'm going, you know what, here's a guy that would understand me, understand what I've gone through. Cause see, that's one of the perils of my life is that I feel like I'm living on an Island all by myself and nobody can relate to me and I can't relate to anyone else. Mm. That's one of the frighteningest things that I endure is I've got no one to relate my story to, you know? So anyway, I, I, so I decided I contacted Marty and I said, Hey, Hey, Marty, you know, I, I just thought that I could connect with you because I, I felt like you're someone who could understand. And I wrote him just to just please connect with me. Just please understand and believe me, you know, then I'd have one person in this world that would understand and believe me. And to me, that was important. So I wrote him and he said, yeah, he said, send me the book, you know, and I was like, yeah, you know, here we go. You know, somebody saying, just send the book. Yeah, whatever. So I think I sent it on a Friday afternoon. He lives in Ireland. He lives in Belfast. And he contacted me on a Monday, like right after. Mm -hmm. And he said, Michael, he said, this is the craziest story I've ever heard. He says, this is crazy. And I was like, oh, really? Really? You believe me? You know? And he said, yeah. He said, he said, Michael, you got to tell your story. I said, well, I've been thinking about going public. You know, my girls have been trying me, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the rejection and people contacting me, telling me you're full of crap and you're a liar and you're trying to sell books. And I couldn't care less about that. You know, like I said, I would have done it in the last, you know, 30 years if that was the case. But he's the one that really, he said, listen, Michael, just get it out there. Because my girls said something to me because I told them and I had told Marty, I said, you know, I could never believe that there was somebody out there like me because no one, like I said before, no one attempted to rescue me, even knowing what was going on. No one attempted to rescue me. And I thought to myself, what if there's some 19 year old kid, some 15 year old kid out there going through something similar and they feel the same way as me. And to me, that was like, Oh my God. Yeah. You know, to to have somebody knowing what I went through. I mean, it's bad enough knowing I know what I went through. You know, I mean, I black out all the time. I mean, the measure, the results equal the measure of the trauma. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I thought to myself, you know, and Marty said, you know, Michael, you could you could put this out here. Even if one person is going through this that has this thing going on and is afraid to tell is being covered up because this is what they do. Authorities suppress things because they have no answer for them. And this is what they do, you know, and I thought to myself, hey, you know what? You're right. I could be I could be the book that helps that one kid out there that was me who yeah. was crying in his closet asking for somebody to come and rescue me and I didn't even know what I needed rescue for. So that was the nail in the coffin when it was turned around back on me and saying you wanted rescue, didn't you? You wanted somebody to come and 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 spirit you out of that place. I said, yes, that was my, you know, that was my knight in shining armor moment. And it never came. So to think that I was depressing someone of 
of that was horrifying. So that was it. And I said, I got to do this. I got to do this. And that was really the nail in the coffin. Perfect. And we're going to have all those books linked up on the site. Yeah. Uh, how can, if people want to contact you and share their own personal experiences or what, how they feel after they read the book, uh, do you have a website or a way people can write you? No, I, I don't have a website, okay. but um, and I, re- I really don't want to get into the website, but okay. you know, blame if you. people want to, <laughs> I mean, if you have a disparaging comment for me, please don't write me. <laughs> I'll just ignore it. I mean, I'll that's how it, we do this like show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, if, if somebody has something encouraging or thinks that the story could help somebody that they know that maybe they feel, you know, you can, you can uh, contact me at events with a capital E events, capital M capital G. So it's events M Gagliardi mm-hmm. at gmail.com with the M and the G capitalized. We'll make sure we, so we put that on the post. At M gagliardi.com cool michael thank you so much again um it was good talking to you again about this you know getting into you know the rest of the story so to say um and i do want to say to you you know i i do wish you because this obviously as we've talked in great depth tonight this still affects you right yes there's still you're still dealing with this today and i know i can speak for amber also on this is i know we both wish you you know the best in this and how you're going to deal with this for the rest of your days right yeah i hope i hope that it gets better as time goes on but this isn't the last time we're going to talk either i have a good feeling about that (laughs) i think we'd love to have you back on again sometime yes that would be that would be great i'd be more more than happy to more than happy it's very therapeutic to talk about this and it's very therapeutic to hear you know compassionate people because I never got any of that as a kid and and at 54 you know it's still there's still time yeah there's still time for me you know that yeah, I can is. accept that encouragement and 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 feel yes there are people out there that do believe me yeah you know and it's good thank you so much I really appreciate that thank those you. comments are, are amazing for me ghostly talk <laughs> Did you ever